This week on the Saber.com podcast, nothing's finer than beating Carolina as the Who's in their losing streak. Louisville is up next for the football team. We continue to prepare for basketball season. And in the music segment, live concert movies. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, the Saber.com. All right, time again for the Saber.com podcast, and we've got a victory to talk about this time around. We welcome in Chris Horn, Chris Wright from the Saber.com. I'm Jeff Sweatman, your host. We'll talk a little music, turning the tables, and we'll have a an interesting UVA football anniversary to kind of tie into the music uh, this week and maybe some live music movies. But before we get to uh, that and a little bit of hoops discussion, as uh some news about the schedule fleshing out a little bit, but uh, nothing finer than beating Carolina, right, guys? Wow, what a game. So many things. I, I watched the replay this time around on uh, the ACC Network after watching most of the game live, and I took a bunch of notes, but you guys uh, take it away here. What do you think worked best for the Who's uh, in this case? Well, I've been harping on it. you got to score points to win in college football. Uh, by far their best offensive game of the year, 44 points. Ran the ball well, mixed in the pass, but didn't rely heavily on the pass, which is something that Chris Horn has been <laughs> been harping on a lot on the show here is run the ball more. Uh, they did that and scored more. So that's really what jumps out most immediately to me. And then just snapping the losing streak, getting a win in October is a big deal, right? Like if you go all the way through October without a win, even though the schedule is going to ease up a little bit here, that's just not a, not a great feeling, right? So for them to get back on on track going into an easier part of the schedule could help them build confidence even though there's no gimmies ahead necessarily, it at least gives you something to build on versus constantly going, we're close, we're close, we're close. Yeah, I think for me, it was kind of like uh, the stuff that had go- been going against UVA and the kind of the plays that UVA hasn't made or the turnovers they have made. It was kind of the shoe was on the other foot, I felt like against North Carolina. North Carolina was the one that had the bad turnovers, the bad penalties that really helped Virginia out. And then Virginia was able to get some some big time, some big plays. Uh, obviously, Brent Armstrong kicking things off with a long touchdown run, the nice pass to, to Shane Simpson for that long touchdown as well, like you know, for the second score of the game. You know, again, for me, the stuff that they were doing that has, has caused them to lose the games, I felt like North Carolina kind of did that in this game. And it kind of felt a little bit similar to last year's where, you know, UVA kind of just did just enough to set back that high octane North Carolina offense uh, and then scored just enough points and was able to hold them off at the end. So, but again, I think UVA was able to make the plays that, that they needed to make. And then North Carolina conversely made some really bad plays that really helps uh, Virginia, like the, the end of the half fumble, uh, another fumble in the second half, things like that. Well, and it's pretty amazing, guys, to, for UVA to be outgained by over 100 yards. North Carolina only had the ball for a little over 25 minutes, and uh, we had lost our last four to ranked teams, but 44 points, most versus an AP-ranked team since 2002. UVA scores two touchdowns each of the first three quarters and then had an interception and a field goal in the fourth quarter. So it was almost, yeah, the exact opposite of the way the games have been going, where these slow starts and then we come on strong at the end. So... I guess a message board poster posed, posed the question, was that the best game called by Robert and I at UVA? What did you like about the uh, the play calling, I guess, sticking with the run, huh? Was the theme there? Yeah, definitely sticking with the run was the theme. I think it's debatable if it was the best game he's called at UVA, but it's up there. It's certainly uh, up there. Last year's Virginia Tech game, I think, was pretty good. Certainly produced a lot of points in that game. The Boise State game was one that came up in the thread. That's obviously an older one within the the Bronco Mendenhall era so far here. But to put up that many points and just stick to something so much, right? Like, it feels like some of the other, like, explosive games they've had, uh, Central Michigan their first year, that sort of thing, was, was predicated on big plays and individuals making plays. And there was some of that in this game, but there was a whole lot of team 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 grind 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 vibe to this game and i just felt like it played to their strengths and played against carolina's weaknesses you know we said that carolina had trouble stopping big plays and stopping the run and they got a few big plays and kept pounding kept pounding kept pounding so from that standpoint sticking to what worked and taking advantage of the other team's weaknesses it was certainly one of the best games i think anaya has put together here yeah breaking out the wing t uh, on the, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that since my high school LC Bird days. Uh, the winning team. Now I can't remember if that was the Talapapa 
walk-in run or the Keaton Thompson run. But either way, that was pretty sweet. I, again, I'm a huge rushing fan. But, yeah, I thought, yeah, just, uh, just like Chris said, I think just kind of sticking to what was working I think was a, a big key. But they also, you know, they got some of those big individual plays. Like Shane Simpson, I mean, the 71-yard reception, you know, him, you know, he had nine touches, but 140 yards off of those touches. So, I mean, he really uh, came through in a big way. And, you know, Brennan Armstrong, his first touchdown was just a great individual, uh, individual play by him. Tony Poljan, that, uh, the, that reception in traffic, the touchdown reception, 17 yards in traffic uh, against two UNC defenders. And then, turning around, reaching over, uh, another great individual play. So, yeah, I think it was a, a really well-called game, and I like what like what he did. But, again, some some really nice individual, you know, the individuals making the plays um, uh, certainly were was another big storyline, too, I think. When we had talked previously, I think it was last week, about the drops among the wide receiving core and the tight ends this year being a problem. Henry and Poljan had a couple of big drops in the, the beginning of the game. They both made up for it with touchdowns later. Uh no Davis again. So it was nice to have those, the, the complimentary receivers and some of the running backs chiming in with the, the passing game. One of the stats I jotted down here, UNC had almost 100 yards rushing in the first quarter. A lot of uh, stiff arms. And it, it, <laughs> the announcers kept going on and on about these two running backs that we had talked about last week. So it wasn't looking good, but they ended up with only 59 yards rushing at the half. A lot of uh, sacks in the second quarter for UVA's defense. And they ended up in the entire game, they ended up with 93 rushing yards for uh, for UNC. So they fixed that quickly. That's it, it, bizarre to, to be uh, doing so well with the, the rushing game in the first quarter. But, but UVA made some adjustments, I guess. And there was a string there where Snowden had three sacks in a row, basically, over two possessions that kind of helped turn the tide. So I guess, uh, you know, if you guys want to keep talking offense, we can, but certainly uh, was Snowden the, the player of the game for you on, on the defensive side? ACC linebacker of the week. So it'd be hard to argue with him being the player of the game. That's one that had come up in the media. We came up here on the podcast as well. It had been all over the message board. What's up with Charles Snowden? What's up with Charles Snowden? And the last two weeks, he's really responded. Some of that is, I think, scheme oriented, but some of it is, I think he's just playing better. He's finishing plays. Coach Mendenhall kind of openly said they needed better play from Snowden and Taylor. And then you got a response. And that's one of my favorite things about Coach Bennett's basketball program. He will often say, I challenged so-and-so. I challenged so-and-so. Not called them out, not screamed and yelled or whatever, just challenged them to be better. And that's basically what Coach Mendenhall did with uh, with Charles Snowden. Be better, be better. And he's responded. He had a huge game, finished plays. He had the strip sack uh, that he kind of teamed up with Zandier. You know, Howell had scrambled, looked like he could throw it away. Snowden came in late and wrapped up and, and poked the ball out while while making the tackle. So also created one of the two key turnovers that off fumbles that led to 14 points for Virginia. So he not only, you know, affected field position, all those things, he did something that led directly to a score change because they scored on that very next drive. So yeah, huge game from him and, and really, really good in terms of finishing off plays, right? That's something we've been talking about too. Like, yeah, they're close, they're close, but they're not making any of those plays. Well, Charles Snowden made a bunch of them. Yeah. What do you think in terms of why is the run defense uh, working so well? And then the, the pass defense is, is definitely struggling. Well, I think the, I mean, I think uh, the strength of the team is clearly the front seven. I think, and it's it's really good to see like Charles Snowden and and Noah Taylor really start to make be in more and more plays and and start to make those plays. And I think just on the back end, you know, when you're playing, uh, you know, two basically new safeties, you have D'Angelo Amos, who's an experienced guy, but he's new to the program, and then you have Antonio Clary, who's a sophomore, didn't see a whole lot of time last year as a freshman. So you know, those guys are kind of learning on the job, uh, uh, if you will. And then, you know, I think one thing that impressed with the cornerback coverage coming in uh, with Devontae Cross and Nick Grant, but I think one thing that they have trouble with is real speed guys. And uh, Deami Brown's got a lot of speed. Uh, man, it's got to be some kind of record than what he's done to Virginia the past two years, over 200 yards in both games. I mean, it's, it's got to be some sort of record. He's just totally dominated the UVA secondary. They're going to face more guys like that, you know, with Louisville coming this coming week. So, you know, clearly the back end is the weakness. And the front seven is the strength. And I think Chris mentioned it earlier in the season, talking about Charles Snowden and Noah Taylor. How much do we want to take away from the strength to help with the pass coverage or just keep the strength of strength and make that even stronger? And so that'll be interesting to see how they handle that. I, I kind of think, you know, it is what it is, but you want you have to have a real strong suit. And I think the front seven being active and creating havoc and doing a good job slowing down the run, I think, is the way to go and just 
you know, unfortunately that that's going to mean probably giving up some big plays on the back end, but I think creating some havoc and getting some of those turnovers, like they got with Charles Snowden on the Sam Howe, which Sam Howe fumble, which resulted in a, a touchdown to put UVA up by 21. You know, I think that's going to help the defense make, make some more plays that maybe they won't, won't make if, if they're say putting Snowden and, and Taylor in coverage more often. I think Chris hit on it. The co- corners are inconsistent. Right. So the corners are not awful, but they're not consistent. So they do make some mistakes. And then the safeties aren't being good enough to cover it up for them. So the safeties are also, particularly the guys that are in there right now, are making more mistakes than Blunt and Nelson were making before they went out with injury. So I think that's some of what you're seeing. In terms of the run defense, the defensive line right now is playing really, really well. And their personnel there to me is more suited to stop the run than it is to pressure the passer, right? So Last year, you know, you could bring in Aaron Famui or, or others as a, as a pass rushing specialist on certain downs and create pressure with your defensive line too. Right now, they're not getting a lot of sack type pressure from their defensive line. So even though Jawan Briggs has several sacks, a lot of those have been kind of late, late in the shot clock type of, type of sacks, right? Where the, the coverage has helped out. So with that said, they're really good against the run. Jawan Briggs is really like standing blockers up. Carter, freshman, has been really good early in his career here at just eating up space and standing guys up. Alonzo has been solid against the run. Richard Burney was, he's obviously out now and he may be out for the long haul. It sounds like he he's been uh, good against the run early as well. So I think that's a lot of it. Just the defensive line is able to, to level off or stack up blocks. And the only place that any teams have found any success is out there on the perimeter running, getting away from those defensive linemen. Right. So um, I think that's a huge part of it. Well, as far as offensive uh, players of the game, I think there's really only uh, two choices, guys. You got to go with either uh Keaton Thompson for the, uh, that uh, fake punt at the end of the game, if nothing else. And then uh, our man, Tucker Finkelston. <laughs> oh man, it was a huge play. You know, we kid, uh, love the guy's name. And, and the announcer totally blew it on the ACC network. He didn't even mention his name when he, uh, he came up with the muffed punt there. A uh, couple minutes before halftime, Thompson ends up walking in for a touchdown. Seemed to be a huge hole on the left side of that line, by the way, because uh, Talapapa same play pretty much just walked right in through that left side. So what did you guys uh, make of Thompson's contributions uh, in throughout the game? Really? One thing I think he's bringing to the team that I've noticed, it seems like he's bringing like an extra leader or extra energy or spark to the team, which I didn't, you know, he seemed like kind of a laid back guy coming in and you're not sure how, you know, guys in their first year are going to adapt, but it seems like he's really a step forward to me and being kind of a spark for the offense. And he's to me, a, you know, and you could tell from the stats, or you saw from the stats coming in that he was a good, he was very capable runner. And I think you're seeing that, you know, the time he took the handoff and you know, I kind of made a comment in, in my edge notes, six, four running back. I mean, he looks pretty natural as a running back. Like he took that, the way he took the handoff, he looks you know pretty comfortable back there. I wouldn't mind seeing him more and uh, just with his basic running ability and his, his speed be kind of a back in addition to the wildcat quarterback. But um, I guess they're going to probably use him in more of a continue to use him in the utility type role where they're lining him out at a receiver, putting him at running back, putting him at wildcat quarterback. But yeah, I think he's a guy with his athletic ability and his speed and his natural running ability, you know, get the ball in his hands more. But again, what, what has really struck me is that the team, the team seems to be gravitating towards him and, and, uh, and, and really responding to him. And I, so I think he's bringing a lot of energy. And, and again, just making that game-winning play, um, that's something else, else that's just going to kind of add to that resume, I think, just the, what, the grit that he showed on that, that run uh, to get that first down after being stuffed going right. You know, that was pretty special. So I think that's going to help the team, you know, respond to him even more. Much better use. <laughs> Much better use. More diversified. It's not pure Wildcat. They've come out with different ways. They, they ran the old Smoke Mizell Statue of Liberty run to him too, where he motions into the backfield and then reverses and comes right to the quarterback and, and runs with it. So they're using him as a running back in addition to as a wildcat quarterback type. He threw it once, drew a, a pass interference flag. Now he says he can't throw it constantly. That's why he can't be the quarterback. His shoulder won't hold up to that over time, but he can throw a few. They mixed one of those in. They did the, the jump pass in an earlier game this season as well, threw a deep pass once on a trick play against Duke. So he's throwing one here and there. So mixing that in. The last piece to me is getting him a little bit more involved in the passing game if possible. So maybe a couple of those those big boy routes in the middle that that Pole Jan is getting, maybe you can get Keaton Thompson on a couple of those. Um, unless in practice that's just not working. I'm assuming we've they've at least considered that. Can you get him sitting down on a sit down route in the in the middle? Because 
Poljan has trouble boxing guys out sometimes on those. So I'm wondering on a key third down or something, could could Thompson body up and box out on a couple of those throws? Yeah, and as well as a receiver against Miami, he made that really nice uh, 11 yard first catch on for a first down on the sideline, kind of like looked like he'd been playing receiver for for a while. So, well, I know that's not the the um, type of re- reception you're talking about, but he's showing the ability to do multiple things, including receiving. So, uh, yeah, get the ball in his hands more. I think is is a good plan. Well, and talking about Anai and the, the play calling and on that, just watching the replay, it sort of struck me in the first half. It almost seemed like we were going North Carolina style in terms of we were running almost like the hurry up offense, it seemed. And second half, you know, that nine, what was it? Nine minute drive in the fourth quarter. Only got a field goal out of it, but that turned out to be the, the deciding field goal. Although it was kind of interesting missing that extra point at the beginning of the game if the fake punt doesn't work at the end of the game, then North Carolina could have possibly looked like they had quite a good kicker that 52 yard field goal he made or something. So man, that would have been, uh, <laughs> that would have been an interesting post game press conference for Bronco had uh, Carolina taken us to overtime, but uh, I don't think he had a choice. That's true. It was decision was kind of made for him, right? How quickly right. North Carolina was scoring. To me, it was how far were they going to go to score? Not were they going to score <laughs> the way it, it had started to go, especially, I mean, you could have just gone to Deami Brown, a game winning drive. No one could guard him the whole game. <laughs> so um, I don't think it was a question of if they were going to score, it was where were they going to score from? So even if you kick it away or go for the punt, uh, fake punt, and you don't get it maybe you're just getting the ball back by giving the ball at midfield instead of kicking it away. And they use the whole clock to go, to go take the lead back. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty easy, even though high risk decision. Yeah. Listen to the radio call is kind of interesting. I, I know Dave Kane was like, yeah, they should go for it. And then Cub was kind of like, well, they didn't really get a whole lot on third down. So I'm not sure about that. That's an old defensive back. <laughs> D- defensive back wants the defense to win it. Like, That's right. Now Thompson, he could have pitched to, to Nash Griffin there. Of course that was, maybe would have maybe been the longest option pitch in history because he was way out there but um no but yeah what a run and it was it looked like North Carolina kind of had an inkling of of it coming but Chris I know you uh, I think you mentioned that uh maybe on Twitter where the guy that kind of saw it coming kind of overran it as well and so when that allowed kind of Keaton to to cut it back and since there was nobody there to seal it you know the guy was kind of just waiting for him then it might have been a different story but Keaton was able to rush it back and, and show a lot of toughness and grit and getting that first down. So, but yeah, no, I agree. I think it was, it, it was the right call and to keep it out of Hal's hands and Deami Brown, especially. Any concerns about Armstrong guys? Uh, the sets I have here is 12 of 22, 67.2 QBR for what that that's worth. Uh, announcers on the ACC network made, uh, you know, comments a couple of times about a few different bad RPO reads where, you know, we could have maybe had a big, Wayne run around the other end that he decided to take it and just lost yardage. And then the injury there towards the end of the game, any, any reports on how he's doing health wise? No, we don't really know yet. He did walk off the field. He did break the rock, which requires swinging a sledgehammer. I can't imagine they let him do that. If he has a serious concern, that's just me hypothesizing, but I know I wouldn't, if I was a coach, no way are you swinging a sledgehammer if, if we're worried about your knee. Right. I think what we're seeing is a guy that's improving, you know, as he gets more experience, right. He, threw three touchdown passes in this game. He actually threw three last week in the illegal procedure where they lined up wrong on the opposite side of the field from where the touchdown happened. So he really threw three the week before. I think he had three in the Clemson game or two or three. So he's had multiple multi-touchdown games, you know, kind of bookended around missing that game and a half with, with the concussion. So if he can erase the mistakes and do a little bit better with a few of those read option type things, um, I think we're just seeing a quarterback that could be really good over the long haul. Remember, this, we're only half a season into his time as a starter, and the interception he threw was his fault. He was late, and he threw it in the wrong spot. <laughs> so it, could they have kept running it? Yes, but as an offensive coordinator, and I'm hard on on play calls, to me, that was about as safe a call as you could make. You don't expect your quarterback to throw an interception in the flat on a safe safe play call like that like he's, he's got to do better with that type of thing to reach his full potential but he's definitely definitely making ground up quickly uh with his play at quarterback i think yeah that pass was kind of more like what he was doing earlier in the season late just kind of not seeing the field i mean it was a good play by the north carolina 
Um, I believe linebacker kind of flying in there, but that's definitely a pass that he should not have thrown and just a easy throwaway right there. And that, but that's something that as far as making better decisions is something that I think he's done the past two weeks um, against Miami and against uh, North Carolina. I felt like against Miami, he didn't have, there really weren't that many or any passes that were in danger of being intercepted. So I think he did a good job of cutting down on the turnovers there. And then North Carolina, that one pass is really the only one that really comes, comes to mind that, you know, maybe the the touchdown to pole jam was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a risky decision, but um, you know, it was an aggressive decision, I guess you can call it. But, but other than that, you know, I think the, the read option you mentioned, Jeff, where um, yeah, I think the defensive end was kind of right there. (laughs) <laughs> waiting for him to run it. And if he just hands it off to that, that's a clear handoff to Talapapa. But that in the past, those are really the only kind of couple of mistakes that really come to my mind. He seems to be calming down, making better decisions. And I just love his confidence. He just, um, you know, post game, he was talking about that long drive where, you know, they kicked the field goal, which was good. But he was like, yeah, man, we should have just punched it in. And it just seems you can kind of get that vibe that the coaches are talking about with him with in terms of like his, his just energy and his spirit and he's kind of go, go, go. And, and I think that's kind of what, at least what I'm seeing that his, the team responds to. But again, I think it was important for him to stop making the interceptions he was making throwing earlier in the season, the poor reads, the bad decisions. And I think you're seeing him calm down, make better decisions. And then for me, it's just uh, as much as he runs the football, you know, injured, can he hold up? And hopefully they wouldn't let him swing a sledgehammer if he's, uh, if he's injured. I, I think that's pretty safe, but just the fact, I mean, he's, Game in, game out. That's Virginia's game is running the quarterback. So they're going to take hits. I mean, there's only so much, uh, so much you can do when you're running in between the tackles. So uh, uh, that's kind of my main concern is, you know, his, his health. Kudos to the whole team for cleaning up the turnovers thing. I know I was harsh on here several times uh, on one of our Instagram things that we do live on Fridays said the same thing. Just stop turning over the football. Well, they went from three per game to one per game, the last two games. And really the one against Miami was was not actually one. I know it counts as one, but it wasn't really one. It was a crazy lateral thing there at the end. So yeah, hats off to them for cleaning that up. They, they were on pace for 33 turnovers um, and they've cut way back on that the last two games. Two more quick things, guys, before we talk about the uh, upcoming game versus Louisville. Tony Poljan, wanted to give him a shout out. I know some fans have been kind of harsh on him with the drops and uh, apparently he's number four uh, among tight ends in terms of catches in the country and the ACC as a conference has three of the top four guys. So big year for tight ends in the ACC, but I don't know with Louisville, I'm not sure we can count on some of those uh, unsportsmanlike penalties that uh, UNC had two terrible ones that really helped UVA out when uh, we were kind of stalling there on offense just a little bit. Then there was the play. We were kind of texting back and forth at, right before halftime. I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> Even, uh, Hasselbeck on ACC Network was basically saying UVA should just keep pass interference, pass interference. They're going to run out of time and have to kick the field goal here at some point. They're, you know, it's getting down to like 12 seconds and they decide to throw it backwards. <laughs> they just run out of time, completely got no points out of it at all. And it ends up being a three-point game. So that those were three huge mistakes that you got kind of gifted by your opponent. So um, it's hard to kind of analyze that sometimes and, and keep that in mind as you're you know, working with your own team, you, you got to get a little bit of luck, I guess. We were due for some of that <laughs> on, on UVA's end, right? So we will talk about Louisville coming up on the next segment here. It's the Saber.com podcast. All right, into the second segment here on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host, along with Chris Wright and Chris Horn from the Saber.com. We analyze until we can't analyze no more. And uh, a lot of great insights here as we look ahead to another big game. And, you know, I kept looking at the schedule, guys. Fans love to get ahead of themselves. And, you know, one win, the whole world changes. And I don't know. I'm looking at this schedule. It's it's kind of shaping up here for uh, – it's all in front of us now, you know. And meanwhile, the, the Hokies schedule gets a little bit harder. So uh, – <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I said it on here. I know I said it to Luke Neer on the best seat in the house. I'm not in that business of projecting all this stuff out, right? He, he, he I forget what we're talking about. It was before the Miami game. He's like, oh, Virginia fans, you're staring at one in five right now. And I said, they're not going to be one in five, <laughs> right? Like you can't, you can't look at it that way. Take the next game and try to win it. Yeah. Take them one at a time, right? Chris Horn. And uh, what do you think about the, the Cardinals here? 
Yeah, it's amazing what a one uh, a win can do. Now everybody's like, "Hey, everything's great again." <laughs> Happy days are here again. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, no, it was, it was a good win. Like Chris said earlier, I think it gives them momentum. And now Louisville against Virginia Tech, I think they had like maybe eight or nine defensive players out because of COVID. Yeah, nine players. I think it was. Uh, and so I think those guys are expected to be out again uh, this week, if I'm not, uh, if, according to their coach. So that obviously is good news for the Virginia offense in terms of continuing what they did against UNC. So we could have another crazy kind of shootout type of game. I mean, you have Louisville, you know, Cunningham last year. I mean, tore UVA up as far as just running uh, and his scrambling ability. Uh, this year, I don't think the coach is going to insert the backup in and give UVA a, a quarter break like he did last <laughs> last year. So I think UVA is going to see Cunningham. And Cunningham has been really improved as a passer in October. I think he threw he, – his completion percentage was in the 60s. So that was a marked improvement, and he threw – it passed pretty well against uh, Virginia Tech. He has been uh, interception prone, but can the UVA secondary – are they good enough to take advantage of it? I think if it's anywhere near Grant or Cross, I think so. But again, I think this, or, or maybe Amos, that, that's something to watch for me. But again, they have guys who can beat you at quarterback. They uh, Louisville has guys that can beat you at quarterback with Cunningham. Uh, he can beat you with his legs and his arm. Hawkins is a terrific tailback who, who did well against Virginia last year. So again, UVA's front seven is going to have to stop, slow him down and Cunningham down in the run. And then they have Tutu Atwell and, and several other receivers who are capable, speedy receivers who have, uh, I think, has give, have given UVA secondary trouble. So, again, we could be in for another shootout uh, this week. I think we said way back at the preseason poll, Clemson, clearly better than everybody else, maybe Notre Dame, and then we kind of see who third was. But fourth through the rest of the standings is pretty even. That's what this game screams to me. 50-50 game. The team that pay, plays the best probably wins, <laughs> right? So I really boil it down to something that simple. These two teams are pretty even uh, in a lot of areas. Who, who shows up and, and is ready to play and takes care of business? I'm a little surprised to see Louisville a two-and-a-half-point favorite as I'm looking at it here now. But uh, they have scored some points, 34 against Miami. Uh, they scored 35 against Western Kentucky to start the season. Close game. Uh Lost by field goal at Pitt. Got kind of blown out at Georgia Tech. Then that was it was a weird low scoring game at Notre Dame. They only lost twelve to seven, and then they blew out uh, Florida State. Lost by a touchdown to Tech at home on Halloween. So, are those the same odds guys that had Carolina favored last week? Probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that show up and whoever understand. plays the <laughs> right. I mean, Carolina was supposedly number fifteen in the country. Now they've got Liberty is number twenty five in the country. So Liberty's actually the uh, the favorite playing the Hokies. But yeah, again, I mean UVA does not against Louisville. They don't have a whole lot. They don't have a lot of room for error. So if UVA gets back into the old ways they were doing earlier this year, and it's going to be a shootout. I think like Chris, like Chris says, evenly matched teams. Louisville can put points up. You know, the team that makes the least amount of mistakes, Louisville's had a turnover problem like UVA had. So whoever doesn't commit turnovers uh, may come away with a win. Well, let me talk about uh, Louisville's pass defense is pretty well regarded, highly ranked. But, you know, is it going to be the same template for for UVA to have success then? Just pound it on the ground? Yeah, so Louisville's pass defense uh, has been good. (laughs) They've statistically are ranked in the top 25 nationally in past defense. They're allowing 194.6 yards per game. So that, that part of the game may be a little tougher. And that's going to challenge what we were just talking about in the last segment. You know, Brennan Armstrong making good decisions and putting the ball in places that it's not in danger. Uh, they had 12 pass breakups against Florida State. So they got their hand on the ball 12 times in that blowout win against the Seminoles. So you want to be careful about where you put the ball without being passive because you're going to have to throw it some. I don't think you can just line up and run it, run it constantly. I don't think Virginia's quite there yet uh, where they can just do that. So they're going to have to mix in the pass some to keep Louisville honest, I think. And kind of looking through the pro football focus breakdowns, it looks like the, the area you might be able to do that a little bit is in the middle. Around 10 yards in kind of the middle of the field seemed to be an area where Virginia Tech had some success, Pittsburgh, uh, Notre Dame, some others, right, kind of in that that spot. So is that a Billy Kemp? Is that a, a Tavares Kelly on a slant? Is that Tony Poljan? Is that the, the box out Keaton Thompson play I was talking about? Like, are there spots in the middle of the field where you can take advantage a little bit, get those short little gains that are, you know, not running plays, but are similar to keep the chain moving and kind of keep that blueprint in place? Because I do think it needs to be a similar blueprint 
you know, Louisville's not great against the run. They allow over five yards of carry. So I do think you want to do the same thing you did against Carolina, meaning challenge the run defense, keep running it, keep pounding it. You know, if you end up only needing 12 completions, uh, make them 12 safe completions and kind of go from there. I, I think there is a very similar blueprint that, that could be used in this game. And it needs to be a similar attitude too. Chris is right. Like it could be a shootout. You need to come in thinking 24 is not enough. I need 30. I need 35. I need 38, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And anything more than that is a good thing. Well, it's interesting too, you know, football is the type of game where in basketball or baseball, you get down 10, you don't really change the way you're playing necessarily. You just kind of try to stick with it, grind it out, get back in the game. In, in football, it seems like the whole playbook gets tossed out when you get down by 14, 17 points. So in the UNC game, it was kind of nice where we had, I guess we led more in that game than they had in the previous five games combined. So nice to play from in front. And maybe that goes back to the luck factor or the, the Mac Brown in Charlottesville factor. He's, he's never won, right, in Charlottesville? Yeah, 0 for 7. <laughs> so all time with Louisville, it's uh, Louisville has won five of the eight meetings with UVA. I uh, wanted to ask you guys about the uh, – Just one of those wins in Charlottesville. Ah, okay. So <laughs> I did want to ask you guys about the ACC officiating – I'm sure that comes up periodically on the message boards. Referees are going to make mistakes. They're human. But in this particular game, there was the huge call that negated what would have been an UNC touchdown where there was an inadvertent whistle. Bronco was about as animated as you'll ever see him on the sideline in the first quarter. There was like an uncatchable ball that they called pass interference on, on UVA. I noticed a, a pretty obvious false start on UVA with about six minutes left. Thankfully, they didn't call that. It would have moved our field goal attempt back five yards. So got a little lucky with with some of those calls uh in some cases so i don't know do we need a little bit more of that home cooking uh, i guess this time around is it going to be one of those those sorts of games where it just comes down to a fluke play maybe <laughs> uh, potentially i mean the the louisville offense now they they had uh, uh, give them credit they have definitely a lot of a lot of weapons but they don't scare me as much as the unc offense did so i think again for me it's going to be the key is going to be the front seven and keeping Hawkins kind of under wraps as much as possible. I mean, he's gonna get he's gonna get some of his, but also Cunningham. Cunningham really really hurt Virginia last year with his legs. So I think they're gonna have to uh, you know figure something out with him, kind of slowing him down. And again, they're gonna have success I think in the passing game. But I think if UVA can their front seven can create some havoc and and force Cunningham into some bad throws, which again has been an issue for for him and UVA can capitalize on a turnover here or there, that can that can be enough. And again, on UVA side, it's just about for Armstrong, continue to do what he's been doing the past two weeks. Don't make any um, really bad throws like the one we saw in the UNC game. But again, other than that, really, I think he's been doing a, doing a really good job. And if UVA can't work that middle, I mean, that's kind of UVA's kind of safe zone. I really under coach and I, uh, you know, Terrell Jana in there could be, could be a factor as well and things like that. But if, but again, Louisville's going to – their defense is going to be out, you know, some real top players in their front seven. So they, they may try to compensate for that um, a little bit. So I think that may open up some more things in the passing game for Virginia. But I think it's going to be important for them to really establish the run, pass when they can, off play action, uh, but also keep just keep going with that run throughout the whole game. Well, I know you guys love those 8, 8 p.m. kickoffs for uh, Saturday night action in Charlottesville. So I'm assuming we'll get Hasselbeck again as part of the ACC network team. I think he's, he's getting used to some of those design runs that Armstrong's doing. Uh, he's still having a little bit of trouble with it. I think his larger point maybe that we could bring up here is there's something to be said for just a quick drop-off sometimes to avoid your quarterback taking some of those lumps. You know, maybe it is a design run, but why can't Talapapa or somebody else run the ball? When, I mean, are you guys – is it a matchup thing where the quarterback's – the one that has the opening because all the other guys are covered. So therefore he should run it. And, and that's just kind of Broncos offense, right? That's his MO. What do you think? I think it depends on which specific call you're talking about. So some of them, you know, it's read option and, and, and the quarterback's just making a decision. Some of the ones you're talking about, I think maybe there's a lead blocker, meaning the, the running back gets a play fake and then becomes the lead blocker. Talapapa right. does that a lot. That's one of his roles. Could you just give it to Talapapa instead? Well, 
that take, you have one less blocker that way. So, right. you know, if they have eight in the box, if they're really trying to take a run away, like having that extra blocker is significant. So is it doable? Sure. I mean, like, you know, early in the Al Grow years when they didn't have a running game, they just threw swing pass after swing pass after swing pass to uh, Professor Pierman. He's now a professor at Stanford. You know, they threw that a, a kajillion times, I feel like. So yeah, you could do that. It's just a, a scheme preference. Like there are a lot of different ways to go about doing similar things. And they seem to like having that extra blocker quarterback runner as part of their preference. Well, and I guess remains to be seen too, if if Armstrong keeps kind of getting nicked up and he had the, the concussion protocol missed, what about a game and a half with that? He's had the injury at the end of the UNC game. So we'll see, but he did get some, uh, some Steve Young comparisons too from the broadcast team. So you can't go wrong when you're, when you're getting compared to somebody like that, you're in good shape. So six of the first eight possessions against UNC touchdowns for UVA. So hard to argue with that uh, rate of success. The other thing that's on my mind a little bit that that's scary to me about Louisville is the big play thing. Virginia's defense continued to give up big plays. They did have the missed extra point. So some of the things that caused them to lose, they were still doing. Louisville can can rack up some big plays. They're one of the country's best at that, I think. Plays over 50 yards or something like that. Well, they had two of those on last week against Virginia Tech. They lost, but a whole chunk of their yards, 172 yards, came on two plays. Javion Hawkins had a 90-yard touchdown run, and Fitzpatrick, the receiver, had an 82-yard touchdown catch. That's 172 yards on two plays. Virginia is vulnerable to that. They just are. And if you give up too many of those or your offense turns it over or whatever, that, that big play thing is still very scary to me with this defense. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's kind of almost expected now that UVA's secondary is going to give up some pass, some some deep passing plays. And, again, Louisville's got a lot of weapons. Uh, uh, Fitzpatrick. Uh, Tutu Atwell, they have a good tight end as well, which UVA has been susceptible to at times uh, the past uh, past several years. So, yeah, I think it's, it, it, you know, you kind of go in thinking that that's going to happen. But if the front seven can perform at a high level and not, you know, UNC Carter was able to, to rack off or reel off a 38-yard run. But really other than that, I mean, I think, you know, obviously UNC kind of got behind and had to throw more. But if UVA can obviously – if their run defense cannot allow any big plays and make them have to make those big plays through the passing game, I think that's going to be big for Virginia. Any indications, guys, if we'll see um, Walker this game, Ronnie Walker Jr., or uh, is, will Davis Jr. be back, uh, uh, that big target for uh, the wide receiving core? I think we're still waiting on the answer to all of that. Are these guys out of protocol? Are they healthy with whatever the illness was? Joey Blunt and Britton Nelson, are they close to being back? There's a bye week after this, so could you – could you get something out of some of those guys and have an extra week to heal them back up? They're still kind of sort of injured, <laughs> you know what I mean, versus fully injured. So, and the game after that is Abilene Christian. So there's a, a little window here where we might start seeing some of those guys be available again, but we don't know that for sure. All right. We'll look ahead to some UVA men's basketball news in our next segment here on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Saber.com. All right. Into the third segment of the Saber.com podcast. Chris Wright and Chris Horn joining yours truly, Jeff Sweatman here. We'll turn the tables for a little musical discussion related to an interesting uh, UVA football anniversary. But for this segment, we're talking uh, men's basketball, Michigan State coming to Charlottesville. They're going to luck out in some ways with uh, not a big crowd, of course, at JPJ, but it will be a part of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. What do you guys think of that selection? Uh, A Hauser Brothers matchup, I guess, made for TV, right? Yeah, sure. Shocking, right? That we got the the Hauser versus Hauser made for TV matchup. So <laughs> nothing too surprising there. If you're trying to match teams up by uh, preseason kind of expectations, Duke, Illinois, Virginia, Michigan State, all ranked in the top 15. So some combination there was was bound to happen. And that Hauser versus Hauser thing was too hard for for TV to avoid, I guess, uh, particularly in a year where TV is is people's avenue to seeing it <laughs> um, versus uh, uh, some places where you're not allowed to have a very big crowd. So kind of as expected, I, there's a, a poll up on the site in the Fan Friday thing from the end of the previous week, which out-of-conference game that we know of so far are you looking forward to the most? Michigan State, Villanova, Florida, St. Peter's. Villanova is leading that poll. So while Virginia fans are like excited to get that Michigan State revenge thing possible, finally in Charlottesville versus somewhere else, I, th- I think that's exciting for Virginia fans. But Virginia, I think they just really love that Villanova matchup. They just like to see it. So 
It's pretty good out-of-conference slate that we know of right now, though. Florida, Villanova, Michigan State. This is a nice uh, addition to that. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, you're excited that Michigan State's coming, but if Michigan State wins again, then you're kind of like, oh, man, that really yeah. sucks. <laughs> but, uh, no, but as far as – yeah, I think – I mean, just speaking on the Villanova, I think uh, it seems like the fans just have a lot of respect for Villanova. Uh, Jay Wright's obviously shown – you know, he's been uh, pretty vocal in his respect for the Virginia uh, Virginia basketball program, which I think the fans appreciate. And it's always a, a really good game. I mean, the game in Charlottesville a few years ago was an exciting game that UVA was able to uh, to pull out. And I, I think Villanova went on to win a national championship that year. And then the game at Villanova, which UVA really was in a great position to, to pull off uh, a win there, was also a great game. So, yeah, I, I think that, uh, again, I can see why UVA fans are excited excited about that game I am too but yeah I mean one thing with Michigan State Florida Villanova I mean those are all three great teams that the bottom line is you know if we hopefully can have a tournament this year that's going to really prepare Virginia for the NCAA tournament down the road and really help you know UVA's obviously got some proven players coming back but also some players that we're not quite sure about I think it it may toughen those guys up uh, sooner uh, sooner uh, earlier in the season prepare them for later in the year as, as well and help them prepare for the ACC too there's up to two maybe non-conference games left available we'll see if Virginia fills both but I made the joke on the message board can we get UMBC on the schedule because right now we have every team that's knocked Bennett out of the tournament previously Michigan State <laughs> Florida Syracuse of course and then uh, UMBC would be the other during the, the Virginia era the teams that have eliminated them in the tournament so let's just Let's get the full revenge tour and make T-shirts and the revenge tour of 2020. As long as you can get the revenge, that's good. Yes. <laughs> if the revenge part is missing, then that's that could be a problem. Not well, such a good tour. <laughs> it's interesting too, because yeah, I feel like the Michigan State maybe has lost a little bit of its luster now that Tony has as many national titles as Mr. Izzo, <laughs> so. and, and Calipari, and a whole bunch of these others that right. <laughs> changes everything. Wasn't the year you were talking about, Chris Horn, where we did beat Villanova the year they went to the Final Four? I think that was the same year we had beaten three of the Final Four teams in the regular season, right? That's got to be some kind of record. I don't know if uh, our, our crack research department can uh, – <laughs> where, where's the squid when you need him, right? We'll uh, go kind of through the roster here as like we've been doing. Uh, we'll talk – well, we talked to post players last week, so we've got wings – on this edition. So we'll start with Sam Hauser, Casey Morcel, Cody Statman, Tomas Woldentensai, uh, or Thomas, take your pick there, and uh, Jabri Abdur-Rahim. You got Carson McCorkle maybe uh, fitting the bill there on the wing, and uh, Justin McCoy we talked a little bit about uh, being excited about in the last couple of weeks on the show. So let's start with the returners. Uh, Morcel, Statman, Woldentensai, what do you think about I would say playing time, first of all, for, for those three guys. We touched on this briefly last week. A lot of the playing time conversation is coming down to who's back versus who's new that has significant recruiting rankings attached to the who's new, right? And it's an interesting question, right? The Virginia won 11 of their last 12 last year with those three guys playing a lot of minutes. They had their best statistical year, defensive efficiency-wise, in the Tony Bennett era, better than the team that won the title, better than some of the um, really stingy teams kind of in the middle there. So what does that mean? Does that mean these guys, you know, have a right to minutes? Does it mean the freshmen better be as good as advertised to take away minutes, particularly on the defensive end? Will they step up and play at least well enough that you're willing to trade off any offense that they may bring? You don't know if they're going to bring. You think they might. It's an interesting question, right? Casey Morsell has tremendous upside and – you know, fans are nervous with it because he didn't play well offensively last year. He's got the tools, though. Was it just like a, a thing? Too too much too soon? And, and now he'll he'll settle in. Cody Statman had injury issues last year. Concussion, a broken nose, a back issue. So do, 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 does anything creep up again with him? Volta Tensai is super streak, right? Like he can be red hot or he can, he can be way cold. So how does that play into it? Does he get an opportunity? And then if he's cold one night, now he doesn't get those minutes later in, in that particular game. Just how does all this work out with these returners? They have to fight for it though, because I do think that the freshmen are talented. We just don't know until they hit the court. I mean, kind of running down that list, you know, I will say for Cody Statman, he surprised me last year. I didn't really see him being as athletic 
as good defensively as he showed at times, but he has had some some injury things and knickknacks here and there. So I think, uh, you know, he's a guy that I'm not ruling out. You know, Walter Tensai, the thing that, you know, obviously he's got his the his, his three-point shooting is – uh, can be can be very good from an athletic standpoint, athleticism standpoint. How much better can he get from last year? I think it's going to help having an off season. You know, with Mike Curtis, of course, it wasn't like a typical off season with COVID nineteen and everything. But you know, how much better does he look athletically, and how will that play into defense? But con- you know, conversely, those guys do have the experience. They've been in the defensive system, and then the new guys coming in don't have that experience in the pack line and obviously defense is first with uh with coach Bennett and that kind of leads me to Casey Morsell who has could have but you know he has the experience and he has the what appears to be the pedigree he's got the talent as, as Chris mentioned he's got tremendous upside if he can get his offensive game going so he's the guy I think that you want to have to step up uh, if he can get provide consistent offense he can he can get the ball to the basket he can he has the ability to shoot the ba- basketball you know, obviously I think last year he fell short in that category but he coming in that was his 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 deal he could shoot the ball but he's also very athletic and defensively I think he could be a big help for a team that you know obviously lost Diakite and Key who were just tremendous defenders and guys they really relied upon down the stretch down the stretch as they became like a real dominant defensive force they really lean on those guys so having another guy that has the experience in the system and has that capability in Morsell, he's he's kind of for me that key guy to step up on the wing but it's going to be you know whoever plays it's going to you know, it's a lot of uh you know you got Clark Hauser and Huff and then who's going to fill in we don't know yet it's going to be who's playing the best here's my question for those three can you be more complete more consistently right complete be a complete player completeness is such a big thing with Coach Bennett. Casey Morsell was was pretty good defensively, a little better on the ball than off the ball, but really inconsistent offensively. Cody Statman's kind of build skill coming in was his shooting ability. He's been very inconsistent shooting the ball. He did other things better. Chris mentioned that, like he was better defensively than I think some people expected him to be last year. He got to the basket a little bit better, but can you bring that element that this team really needs? It needed it last year too. And then Thomas Woldesensai, or Thomas Walter since I've taken your pick, like Jeff said, can he be more consistent both as a shooter and then uh, as a playmaker slash defender, right? Like late mid to late January on, he had more assist than he did earlier in the year as an extra playmaker on the wing. The team needed that, and it will continue to need that this year. And then defensively, at times, he was just not very good. Now, he got better as the year went on. That's kind of a requirement here, <laughs> so that's not surprising. But that, yeah, that's it for me. Can you be more complete, more consistently? How do you feel like uh, the two freshmen will kind of mesh with talking about Jabri and uh, Carson? Carson's going to bring, you know, he's got the ability as a shooter. He can he can bring that that, that you know right off the bat and highly competitive player. So I thought, you know, I don't think he's a lot of people will speculate that he's going to redshirt. And I, I mean, I tend to lean that way as well. But I think he's such a competitive guy. He's not he didn't he didn't come early so he could redshirt. I think he came early because he's hoping to play as as soon as he can. And then you know, Abdur Rahim just has that natural athletic ability and skill that you can't coach. That he's got that long six seven uh, frame. And offensively, he can do some things that, you know, maybe others that at, on the, in the program can't do, which is, you know, at 6'7", he can dribble, he can get to the basket. You know, on the high school level, he was really adept at getting to the basket and drawing fouls and capitalizing at the foul line. So I think UVA is going to need that uh, this year with really a kind of a lack of a post presence. Uh, they're going to need some guys who can get to the uh, get to the baskets. So I, I think he can help there. And then, again, with his athleticism and um, – uh, I think he can he can be a help at multiple positions uh, defensively, but again, how quickly can he pick it up and and things like that? That's always a question with uh, with the first years coming in. So yeah, but I think Abdur Rahim of the two certainly Abdur Rahim's going to be the one who contributes the most. Just how much? So Chris Wright, I got a question direct for you. Play the part of Coach Tony Bennett, and you've got Abdur Rahim and McCorkle just on fire shooting percentage wise in these initial practices really looking like knockdown shooters they're getting the grasp of the offense they know what they're doing they're they're athletic they're really shining do you kind of put Marcel and Statman to the side a little bit and and give those guys some time to shine or is it more of a system thing and you gotta pay your dues and go through the whole first year thing that we've seen Tony really take his time with with these guys that he brings in brand new yeah practice is not games so I would start from there. Just because you're lighting it up in practice means 
frankly, not a whole lot. It's a good sign. It's, it's a building block. It, it's necessary to eventually be good in games, but it does not mean you're going to be good in games. <laughs> um, so yes, those guys would get a chance if they're lighting it up in practice, but I wouldn't pull the other guys out of the lineup and just stick the freshmen in and go, they've been lighting up in practice and here we go. <laughs> Cruise control, baby. <laughs> Easy coaching time. Yeah, I don't think that would happen. So yeah, I mean, I, I think what McCorkle brings to the table, particularly if say those other guys start slowly, Marcel, Statman, Walter Tensai, he can really shoot it, right? Now, we've said that about other guys before, too, and then they get into the college game, and it doesn't translate as well. Cody Statman's an example. Um, there are others along the way that we get reports that they're really lighting it up in practice, and then they don't necessarily trans- translate that to a game. So that is part one. One guy you got to report on that shot the ball well early and then did forever was Kyle Guy. He was one that was like, we heard early, yeah, he's lighting it up. But guess what? Yeah, he, he always does that. So if, if any of these guys are on that end of the spectrum, they'll force their way into the conversation. You don't have to you don't have to force it as a coach. The players will do it themselves. They'll take advantage of whatever opportunity they get. And then you'll have to put them on the floor because they prove it in a game. So so to me, that's kind of where that is with him. If the others are playing well enough and they're shooting well, you know, maybe you you let McCorkle marinate, maybe take a little longer, right? And and that's okay. That's how the system works. That's not a bad thing. It says nothing about Carson's ability or readiness as much as it says about we can make you even more ready. Abdul Rahim is a totally different animal to me. I think he's going to play. I think he's going to play a significant amount. By significant, I mean 15 minutes or more. And I think that's pretty much a given out of the gates. And and I think this for one super important reason. As I kind of go through Virginia from last year and and what they needed, and we've talked about playmaking, this, that, and the other. You know what Virginia did not have last year that they need? Somebody can get their own shot late in the clock or even middle of the clock, or you can just call an ISO four once in a while. Abdul Rahim can get his own shot. You know, Casey Morsell was kind of that guy at times last year. He could rip and go baseline and shoot that little kind of fallaway jumper on the baseline. But other than that, he didn't seem to have a whole lot of tools in his toolbox to get his own shot. Kihei Clark can, can create it, but only in certain ways because of his size. You need somebody that can create offense anytime you need it. If you have one of those guys, you are an elite team versus a very good to great team. And and I think Abdul Rahim could potentially make them a elite team if he has that skill. And obviously Sam Hauser's another guy that could get his own shot that was not on the roster last year too. So that will affect how much Abdul Rahim gets to do it. But after watching him in person, and I know it was top 100 camp where the defense is not great, I am well aware, but his first step is deceptive and it's almost gliding. He just kind of like, eases into that first step but it's explosive at the same time and suddenly he's he's eating up your space as a defensive player and, and that's a really nice tool to have it ha- have in your uh tool belt chris we talk about you know sam hauser and, and justin mccoy we talked about him last week is is kind of in between guys so let's just focus on on hauser as a wing so what would be some of his, like Chris says, toolbox uh, <laughs> tools there if, if we're using him like that in the lineup. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously shooting comes on. I mean, he instantly upgrades the shooting and uh, is a proven shooter on the college, major college level. So he's going to he's gonna bring that for sure. And just, you know, overall scoring ability. I think his field goal percentage was very good uh, outside of just three-point shooting as well. And he can uh, make knockdown free throws uh, as well. So I think it's going to be interesting to me to see what, you know, how many different ways they can get him to basketball. And, and how they utilize him because I think he's just a savvy basketball player. You know, I don't know if he's going to light everybody's uh, hair on fire as far as his overall athletic ability, but I think he's he's a you know a guy who's crafty, savvy, can get his own shot, and you know, be interesting. again, I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, UVA doesn't have a, a real tremendous post presence as far as offensively. Uh, at least uh, from from what we can see so far, you know, maybe he gets some, maybe he does that as well. He can post some guys up and and do some damage down low. So I think you can use him maybe inside and out as well. And Justin McCoy, yeah, I mean, as we were talking about all these wings, he's kind of, it kind of, you know, leads me to believe more that maybe he's kind of a straight up kind of a four type of guy. Uh, but again, it's going to be interesting to see what, you know, what he looks like uh, coming out of the gate and, you know, how he's kind of transformed his body and kind of what his game is. Because I got a little bit of a sense, but not a great sense of what he can do last year. Uh, but he could be maybe kind of an inside out uh, type of guy as well. So, uh, but yeah, Hauser for me, uh, savviness, poise, scoring. I think he's going to bring a lot to the table right away for Virginia offensively. So as far as if you're talking Kihei uh, as your lead guard, we've talked wings now, post uh, last couple episodes here. So, What's your most dangerous lineup to go with Kihei Clark on offense and then for defense? I think with defense, it's Clark, Huff, Hauser. He's a better defender than people think. (laughs) And the numbers back me up on that. So those three, 
Marcel, and then player to be named later. But if I had to guess, I would say either Abdul Rahim or McCoy because they would give you the most versatility at their size at 6'7 or 6'8. If they don't grasp it very well, though, in other words, they're off the ball in the wrong spot or they're too far into a gap or they turn their head and lose cutters or whatever, then maybe you go back to, to like a, a Cody Statman, who I think is at least solid within the system and can support those other guys around him as, as a great defensive lineup. But I would lean toward one of the, the 6'7 or 6'8 guys. And of course, Statman is also 6'7. So that mixes in. So it would be one of those three to me. Offensively, I would say Clark, Abdur Rahim, Hauser, Huff, and then whoever's shooting the best that night. So we'll hold a Tensai, McCorkle, maybe you go re-speak men so that Kihei Clark becomes the shooter in, in that scenario. But I think you need another shooter on the floor um, if you're talking about the most potent offensive lineup. You know, with all these new guys, do you think maybe that helps, can't help but uh, help Marcel and Statman in terms of open shots and less pressure and not being so much of a focal point? Because I feel like we were we spent a lot of the early part of the year last year anyway, just trying to get those guys their shots, trying to, and they had a lot of open looks and it just, they just weren't falling. So maybe that pressure can kind of just be relieved a little bit. And uh, I think there's something to that theory. Well, I think with uh, like, you look at Casey last year coming in um, and he was a highly touted guy, just like some of the guys we're talking about now. I mean, uh, he was a guy that Tony Bennett, pegged early on as a priority recruit and really wanted and, and stayed in there and, and got him. So he, he was, again, so last year wasn't what he wanted. And I, and I, I do wonder, you know, from a mental standpoint, if you, know, you come in with that tremendous hype, if things don't go well early on, if that does start to creep into your creep in your mind, uh, you know, from a shooting standpoint. And I wonder if that did affect him last year. And I think he's been working pretty hard this offseason, from what I understand. And, you know, so I'm anxious to see how he rebounds from that. But I think having so many guys in the picture, I mean, it's going to be interesting because it could be kind of a blessing and, and a curse because, you know, it's good to have that many guys if, if you know, some guys are struggling – Kind of like you mentioned earlier, some guys are struggling. You can bring some other guys in. And uh, what happens if they're all playing pretty well? And, you know, who do you leave out at, at that point? And can, can they get enough minutes to where you get a good sense of who is, when it comes down to game time, who's ready and who's not? So it could take some time to uh, sort it all out. But I think, it, you know, ultimately I think having that much depth is, 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 is a good thing. And then, then hopefully Coach Bennett can get the right chemistry and get the right formula, um, you know, before the tournament comes around. I rebounded for a Virginia women's player one time. I used to work at Debbie Ryan's camps as a uh, as a coach at a camp. I was rebounding for one of the women's players um, at the time during one of those breaks. And I remember saying to her, and this is something I think gets lost a little bit, one of the hardest things to do is to shoot as a role player. You've got to be really, really good on really limited shots. You know, Division One major college basketball at the level that, that Virginia plays at, the guys coming in, most of them are stars. They're used to volume shooting, getting a lot of shots, being comfortable. It's fine for me to shoot this shot. That's totally different when you're at this level and you're only going to get eight shots and you're expected to make four of them or five of them. That's hard. It's a lot harder than people think it is, even if you're a great shooter. So that's part of it too. Who can get comfortable at a low usage number? Because Hauser's going to have a high usage number. Clark's going to have a high usage number. Jay Huff is going to have a high usage number. That means there's not a whole lot of percent touches left. Who's comfortable on fewer touches? Well, the Tensai showed he could be that guy or he could hit six out of eight on a night. You know, so that, that plays into this too. It's not easy to be a role player and make shots consistently on limited touches. Well, guys, anything else uh, UVA men's basketball related? I guess we'll look ahead to, uh, to next week. Beekman and Clark, lead guards. And uh, Clark's on the Koozie Award watch list, by the way. So that's pretty awesome. And uh, we'll talk more about those two guys and just the, the lead guard position in general next week here on the Saber.com podcast. Up next, turning the tables, we'll talk live concert movies. Some previously unreleased Rolling Stones footage has just been unearthed. And uh, we'll talk about a, a famous UVA football anniversary and tie that into music somehow. That's next. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody's included and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and, and participate and add something. All right, welcome back. 
Sabre editor Chris Wright in the driver's seat here for the last segment of the Sabre.com podcast. We are turning the tables with Jeff Sweatman to do a short little music segment. Had a really good thread going last week on Moon Songs. A lot of great additions to the ones we came up here on the podcast and some of the videos we embedded. I did find a zebra song, by the way, <laughs> that had Moon in the lyrics nice. called Arabian Night. So did get zebra in there as well. So uh that was kind of cool, but really good thread going last week. So we like to try to come up with things that maybe they haven't talked about or, you know, just to, just to test the breadth of knowledge that uh, a lot of our posters have on the music front, because they, they yes. really do uh, fill in some gaps really nicely there. So this week's uh, an interesting one that, that you ran across, new release, new footage from the Rolling Stones, live movie live concert movies, right? That the live concert gets turned into a movie. You're seeing that more on Netflix these days where mm -hmm. they kind of like show concerts live. But the, some of these were older on the list that you found and it, and it all kind of stemmed out of an old Rolling Stones song that they re-released. Yeah, it's the uh, famous rock and roll circus broadcast that didn't see the light of day until the uh, mid nineties. It was shelved for like 30 years, but for whatever reason, the, the first live version of Sympathy for the Devil was left off of that. And now we've got that as of uh, November 2020. And it's notable for, well, a bunch of different reasons. You've got the 1968 lineup of the band, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, Ian Stewart playing piano, and uh, Brian Jones was still alive at the time. So off to the side in the audience is John Lennon and Yoko Ono, among other people. Pete Townsend, you can see him briefly. Uh, the Who played a set at this thing. John Lennon was a part of a supergroup, the Dirty Mac, along with Eric Clapton and Keith Richards and Mitch Mitchell. So it was just this whole bizarre rock and roll circus thing that the Stones were trying to make a movie at the time. They ended up not liking their own performance so much compared to some of these other all-stars. So it was sitting on a shelf for a while, but now I guess we've got the full thing, but uh, interesting footage there. So that kind of got me going down the rabbit hole of like, wonder how some of these outlets rank the best concert films of all time. So according to IMDb, the number one film for uh, for them, you've got The Last Waltz at five. That's the band's famous final concert. U2 3D, which is kind of an interesting choice, but not one that high. Stop Making Sense is pretty much at the top of most of these lists. At or near the top, that's the famous Talking Heads, where each member of the band comes out kind of one by one. David Burns wearing the big, huge suit and has the boombox and stuff. Pink Floyd, Live at Pompeii. And then Celebration Day was number one on this list. That was Led Zeppelin's reunion concert back in uh, 2007. So Paste Magazine has a few more modern selections like the White Stripes and um, My Morning Jacket, Nirvana, bands like that. And uh, we'll get links posted to all these different lists. Rolling Stone for their list, it's kind of interesting. They chose to go with the top 25 music DVDs worth rewatching. And this was not an old list. This was from earlier this year. But they just go straight off the top. The Last Waltz, number one. Monterey Pop, which is kind of the documentary about the first big music festival. A Hard Day's Night. So they're kind of including those movies that were included some dramatic elements as uh, the Beatles were getting chased around in that one. It wasn't all just live footage. Woodstock, number four. Metallica, Some Kind of Monster was number five on that list. That's more of a documentary about the inner workings of Metallica and how many, uh, how dysfunctional they were <laughs> as a band. It, didn't it did have some live footage, but so Rolling Stone kind of mixed it up a little bit. But uh, yeah, I'd, it's hard to go against Woodstock and The Last Waltz for me and, and stop making sense uh, probably has to be in the top three there. Full disclosure, I have not ever that I know of watched a live concert movie. <laughs> so maybe I have and don't remember it. So if I did, it wasn't one of the top five that, that ever happened. So I have seen clips, you know, I've seen right. different concert clips of, of, you know, live concerts. I've watched live concerts right. here and there, both right. in person and, you know, recorded via DVR or whatever, but an yeah. official live concert movie. <laughs> I don't know that I, I've ever seen one or if I do, I don't remember it. Ha do you watch these a lot? Or have you seen uh, uh, any of these top five? Now that I think about it, I've, I've seen several of these. Yes. Uh, I've got a couple of Pearl Jam ones in my, my collection. Uh, trying to think you two rattle and hum was, was a big one. I remember friend, a friend of mine absolutely hating that when we saw it in the theater, because our intention was to go see an R rated film at the time we were not 17 or close to it. So we ended up as that was our, Secondary choice. I was a huge YouTube fan at the time. That kind of reframed my whole mindset about that band and made me an even bigger fan. 
even though it kind of got panned by the critics because it was so self-indulgent. But uh, at that time, I didn't care. I just was, when you love the band, you're, you know, you're a little skewed towards, that's the audience for these kind of things. Like you're already, they you don't know, know what it's truly like that's to right. be a fan. I think that's what the, <laughs> the almost famous line is. So yes. forget the critics. You mentioned, I think that the first time that this was released was the mid nineties, right? Without the one song on it, which is perfect segue material. The ni- mid 1990s. 25 years ago this week, Virginia beat Florida State at Scott Stadium. The first time Florida State lost a game to an ACC opponent as an ACC member right here in Charlottesville. So that's a kind of cool anniversary that Virginia fans are always thinking of this particular week of the year, but particularly on year 25. So, you know, kind of keep your eye out. I think Virginia uh, officially in-house is working on a couple of things for that. So they'll release something in that regard. So keep your eye out for that. But we wanted to tie the music segment into the mid nineties there. So 1995, what were some of the top songs? Number one. Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio, followed by TLC in both the two and the three spot, Waterfalls and Creep. And then there are some others on this list that are both on the live concert list as an artist, not with this particular song from 1995, or we've talked about them recently. So Michael Jackson's on here, Madonna's on here, Bon Jovi's on here. There's several that are out there, but number 100 on the list, Van Halen, Can't Stop Loving You. Uh, you don't know how it feels. Tom Petty is on this 1995 list. So those are a couple of folks that we talked about recently here in the last couple of episodes. U2's on here. You mentioned them. Hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me. A lot of Brandy on here. A lot of Vanessa Williams. Remember the kind of R&B vibe of, of the mid 90s. That was also some, some rap in there. Coolio, right? Naughty by Nature. Yeah. It was kind of interesting time, right? You get a lot of mixed music in here. You got grunge. You've got <laughs> the mid-90s yeah. when the, the crossroads of music in a way. Any big songs jump off of this list to you? Uh, Montel Jordan, This Is How We Do It. They're still using that, I think, in uh, commercials and promos. That was a huge one. Boys to Men, uh, they were kind of at the height of their fame. Mariah Carey was having a pretty good run there. Seal, Kiss from a Rose. I mean, that that I think was from the same soundtrack, the uh, the U2 song you referenced, Batman Forever, one of the worst Batman movies, but had probably the best soundtrack of all of them. So <laughs> we talked about soundtrack songs a few weeks ago. Well, I want to know though, from Chris Horn, you were on, were you on the field or were you in the stadium for that game? Because that's like one of the legendary endings in all of college football. Yeah, no, I was uh, a spectator watching the game. Yeah, as a fan in uh, what used to be called Whoville. Uh, so the work done play was coming right at me. So I remember uh, going through a range of a, a gamut of emotions during that play because I saw work done running it right at me. So I'm like, oh, that's a touchdown. So I guess they, they're going to get the win. And then all of a sudden everybody starts celebrating. So I'm like, okay, I guess they won. <laughs> so then everybody pours onto the field and it was, uh, I may have scraped my knee going over the wall or something like that. But uh, no, it was pretty sweet. And just the whole atmosphere, that, that game was just a, I mean, obviously the win was huge, but the game was just a classic game. It was just a great game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, some games are just phenomenal to be at. You know, Virginia Tech last year was just a great game. Uh, yeah. Just with everything <laughs> that happened and just that play, I still don't know how work done. I mean, I see on film that he didn't get in, but it just looked like a sure thing. Like he had, a, he was going to get in to the end zone. Hold on. Repeat that for Danny Cannell, who keeps saying on the ACC network that he got in. Repeat that. He <laughs> did, not did not get in. <laughs> even if they had had replay they would have been able to review it right yeah, and see that yeah. he did not get in well, but now i'm wondering what coach wells was listening to from all these songs you choose from in the post yeah. parties or stuff i don't know what were they blasting in the, the locker room yeah, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> well those were the days too where you when everybody was on the field you tore down the goalpost <laughs> i was never part of the goalpost wherever it went <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm too um, follow I'm it too, to uh, town, man. That was part of the fun. <laughs> I'm too unathletic to try to climb one. So I was trying to stay, uh, you know, non-injured. Smart, but smart. Yeah. Uh, no, but it was sweet. And I, I, really, I remember people all over the place. It was people were just going nuts. I just everybody, you know, adults, kids, everybody. <laughs> yeah, they were, I mean, Florida State was invincible back then. So yeah. not the case anymore, thankfully. But. Uh, We'll see him in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about that coming up. Yeah, I don't know what songs we're going to link to at the end of this, Chris, but we'll, we'll figure out something. We got a, a lot of good YouTube clips that we'll post, right? Yeah, you got plenty of YouTube options when you have the top 100 of a whole year, right? So um, we'll pick some out of there. We, we've done Tom Petty. We've done Van Halen. So we'll try to leave those out, even though we mentioned them here and try to pick some of the others. But, you know, a couple more on here. All I want to do, Cheryl Crow. So beating Florida State, that was fun. So all I want to do is have some fun. 
we'll skim through and see what else we find on this list. And we'll link the list too, so you, you can see it. But between now and then, we'll see if Virginia can beat Louisville. Get a two-game winning streak going. Can they... You know, a couple of fan jokes. Operation seven and four is now in process. Uh, can they win out? And the schedule is easier. You know, Louisville, two wins so far. Abilene Christian, Florida State, who we're talking about here in the 25-year anniversary. But win or lose, can't stop loving you who's number 100 on the 1995 list. So can't stop loving you who's no matter what happens. And we'll go from there.